This is a Courageous Church podcast, equipping and empowering you to live a courageous life. Join us now as we listen to a message from Courageous Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. We're going to begin today with Hebrews 6, 1 through 3. We left off here last week, but here's what it says in the NIV. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ. We talked about that last week. And be taken forward to maturity. Or for those of you that like to pronounce it this way, maturity. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God. Instruction about cleansing rites or baptisms. The laying on of hands. The resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. And last week I said that God permitting, we will do so. As a church, God wants us to move into maturity. He wants us to move forward. He doesn't want us to remain as infants. And you guys saw me and I drank out of that baby bottle and it was a lot of fun. But he does not want us to remain there. He wants us to move forward. Say, move forward. And part of how we move forward is is our understanding of what he wants for us as a people. It's based on what he wants for us. And so to begin, and I've said this before, context is very important. Context matters when you read the Bible. Would you guys agree with that statement? Context matters. And the context of this passage that we're dealing with and that we're about to jump into is spiritual maturity. God wants us to mature in some things. We talked about this, obviously, last week. And today, the writer wants to encourage us to move from the elementary truths about God's word. He names a few here, repentance, faith in God, cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, the judgment. These were all things that the writer considers to be elementary. Now, for many of us and many in our world, they're still wrestling with this stuff. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Is there going to be a future resurrection? What about that? Spiritual judgment. Does God have the right to judge me? (laughs) That's always fun. And there are weightier things that he is leading us into. So at the same time, He then kind of takes what I'm going to call, the writer takes sort of a a quick kind of detour before returning to the main thought or the main point being spiritual maturity. And the detour is where a lot of people get hung up. And so I'm not going to gloss over it today. I'm going to confront it head on. Because as your loving pastor, I don't want you to feel like there's, you know, scriptures that are too hard or too difficult and that we shouldn't take seriously. We need to take all of it seriously. Amen. So I want to say this at the front. If you disagree with my understanding of the scripture today, that's okay. If you disagree with my interpretation, that's okay too. Uh, Many people have wrestled over this for many years. So without further ado, let's dive head in. Are you with me? Hebrews chapter six, verses four through eight. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him, meaning Jesus, to public disgrace. Verse seven, land that drinks in the rain often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Now, this is a scripture that many people don't like because, you know, we don't like to talk about fire and judgment and salvation and falling away and all these other things, right? It's kind of scary. But 
I don't believe that as the people of God, we can mature without embracing this text and without understanding what God wants us to know about it. Amen? So before we move on to verses 9 through 12, which I'm very eager to do, (laughs) before we do that, I want to embrace this passage of Scripture, what I'm calling today our blessed assurance. title of my message is Blessed Assurance. And I want to address this and not gloss over it because context matters. I want to look at the context of not just the book of Hebrews, but this passage itself to help us better understand what I believe are some important interpretive clues. So pull out your magnifying glass with me and let's go a little bit beneath the surface. Number one, we know from the context of this letter that there were people amongst this group of believers in Jerusalem, because that's the context, who had not fully received Christ as Lord and King yet. Would you guys agree with that? Were there those still practicing Judaism in the mix? Absolutely there were. Were there outsiders and others that had, had come to hear about Jesus long after Jesus was gone? You better believe it. And there were many people that participated with the believers in Jerusalem that had not yet fully surrendered their hearts and lives to Christ. You could say it this way. They were in the crowd, but they hadn't yet made up their mind about him. They were still wrestling over the elementary things or the elementary teachings about Christ. They were, along with more immature believers, still wrestling with matters of repentance from acts leading to death. We just read that. Their faith in God. Issues regarding cleansing rites and temple rituals. They were still hung up on whether or not they still needed to do all these things that the law and that those that kept the law had commanded them to do. Things that even were outside of the law that they added to the law to do. They were still wrestling with this. Uh, They weren't sure about the resurrection. In fact, if you were a Sadducee, you didn't even believe in the resurrection. Sadducees didn't believe in the actual bodily resurrection of Jesus or even of the saints or God's people. And then, of course, eternal judgment. Now, remember, the audience here for the book of Hebrews, the audience is primarily what? Jews, okay? So he's not writing to Gentiles here. That's really important for us to understand because we read this as Gentiles, most of us. Any Jewish messianic believers in the house? A few of you? Okay, good. But we read this as those to whom the promises came not first, but second. Jesus said, I have come for the salvation of the house of Israel first, to the Jew and then the Gentile. So there's a process here. And so the writer of Hebrews understands this and understands that these same people in this crowd who had perhaps not even made up their mind yet about Jesus and resurrection and judgment and all this stuff were steeped in traditions and in customs that were sometimes not congruent with the gospel sometimes not aligned with the kingdom that Jesus came to actually proclaim and inaugurate and accomplish. The danger here was that they might actually return to their law-keeping, customs, rituals, spiritualism, you fill in the blank. Are you with me? Number two, some of these same people were able to participate and I would say even benefit from the life of the community that God was establishing in Jerusalem. They were welcome. They were able to experience what we might call here the heavenly gift, uh, receive the ministry of the Spirit, and hear the Word of God preached. Now, some read this and assume, once again, wrongly, that this letter is to born-again, Spirit-filled disciples of Jesus 
But I don't believe that's the case, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. The problem I have with this view is that, number one, the text doesn't explicitly say. So we need to be very careful when the text doesn't say specifically that we don't overassume something. Are you still with me today? Well, that's a good practice, by the way, when you're reading your Bible. If the Bible doesn't say it, be careful about some of the assumptions you make. Now, all of us come to the text, come to the Word of God with our own assumptions, with our experiences, with our baggage. Come on. And we all sometimes interpret things differently, and that's okay, and God makes room for that. However, we need to understand that context matters, and we need to be very clear here. We also know that in the context of a gathering, let's just say a church service like the one we're having today, it's very possible for people to come in and participate in the life of our community, right? Would you agree? Would you agree that right now, even now, there are people that can hear the word of God preached and taste and experience the heavenly gift and the goodness of the Holy Spirit when the presence of God is moving in worship? Absolutely. And so all of these things don't necessarily equate or lead to automatic belief in Jesus, do they? If someone walks in the back of that sanctuary and right through those doors back there right now, and here's the words I have to say, they very well may be convinced and persuaded and they very well may leave and be unchanged. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. People are watching this online, YouTube, listening to this message on Spotify. You might be unconvinced. You might be unpersuaded. But you have the opportunity because of what God has done and what he has presented the community, the people of God, the saints of God, opportunities to experience God and to experience his goodness and to experience his grace. Now, time out with me. Jason, are you telling me that you can experience the grace of God, the goodness of God, the mercy of God, and still walk away unchanged? People do it all the time. You've got family members, some of you that you can only convince to be here on Easter and Christmas. And they come and they experience the goodness of God. And they leave unchanged or unconvinced or perhaps even resistant to truth, resistant to the work of the Spirit. We know this from our own experience, obviously. And secondly, the writer is being very intentional here with the language that he is using in this text. And I want to point it out to you briefly. He uses words like enlighten and tasted. Now, these are very specific words that a Jewish author would use because a Jewish author would understand that the Exodus being the primary story of the people of God and their community that within that Exodus story or narrative is the concept of God leading his people by fire, literally enlightening their path, leading them through darkness, through wilderness, out of Egypt in bondage and slavery into what? The promised land, a place flowing with milk and honey, a symbol of his goodness and his grace. And then how did God feed those same people on their way? With bread from heaven. We call it manna. What is it? It's manna. It's bread from heaven. It's literally God allowing them to taste of his goodness each and every day of their life. He's using this to bring their attention to the fact that the Israelites saw, were enlightened, and tasted God's power, but still sometimes did not believe. In fact, sometimes they allowed their hearts to become so hardened that they rebelled against, that they literally fell away, that they turned their back and moved against God in a way that often cost them dearly. Remember the ground opening up and swallowing the people, the tribe? Oh my gosh. And so 
sometimes they received the goodness of God, were enlightened by the good things of God, and yet still rebelled, still rejected, still resisted, and paid a high price. Thirdly, we see this reality play out all over the New Testament. In Acts 2, verse 13, some of the people that were there in the upper room, that were in the community, heard witnessed and experienced the power of the Spirit as it fell with tongues of fire on the people and still openly mocked the apostles and disciples. You guys agree with that? Acts 2.13 tells us that they were there and that they mocked them. They accused them of actually being, what? Drunk on wine. So they were there, they witnessed it, they were in proximity to the Holy Spirit, the heavenly gift, the things that God was doing even in the beginning. And then Jesus himself takes it even a step further in his message in Matthew chapter seven, verse 22 through 23. Here's what it says. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not even prophesy in your name? Anybody known anybody to prophesy? And did we not cast out demons in your name? Anybody know anybody that cast out demons? And did we not do many mighty works in your name? Anybody seen that or experienced that or taste of that or be enlightened in that way? Yes. And then I will declare to them, Jesus says, and is about to drop the mic. I never knew you. Wow. So not only can you taste of, experience, be enlightened, literally do works in his name, prophesy, cast out demons. Has anybody ever done that, by the way? Some of you? Not very many of you. We have these, this picture of like super Christians, those that do mighty miracles and signs and wonders, all this stuff. And Jesus says, I never even knew you. So I just want us to understand from a big picture perspective here, the idea that we go through the motions and say the right things and do the right things does not qualify us for salvation. It does not qualify us for belonging to Christ. Because the question isn't so much, do you know Jesus? The question is, does Jesus know you? Does Jesus know you? So apparently you can do all these things and still not know him or belong to him. Once again, Jesus' audience and the writer of Hebrews' audience is the same. Are you still tracking with me today? We doing good so far? Nobody's ready to throw tomatoes or revolt? Good. Now, let's get down to the difficult parts of this passage. People often point to the phrase, having fallen away, to indicate that they once fully belonged and fully believed. But the Greek verb here, used for having fallen away, and it's the only place this occurs in the entire Bible. So, as a rule of thumb, we need to be very careful about constructing theological systems over one word. But it's the only time it actually occurs in all of the New Testament, on all of Scripture. And it's the word parapipto. Say it with me. Parapipto. That's fun to say. And it means to willfully turn from and actually oppose. In this context, it refers to a strong stance against God epitomized by sinful behavior, by unbelieving behavior. Now, there's a couple of things I want to note about this. This is not about making a mistake or accidental error. Parapipto is not, oh, I stumbled and, oh, what a dummy. Oh, I made a mistake. This isn't about accidental error. It's not even about having questions or doubts. I'm not sure about this, or I'm not sure about that, or I'm still wrestling over that. That's not what parapipto means, okay? It's a full-on, blatant rejection and opposition to the person, teachings, and work of Jesus. Now, I believe this is why those 
that do this can't be brought back to a place of repentance and not because they can't repent, but because they won't. Are you tracking with me? It's not because God doesn't give them the opportunity to be restored or to repent and humble themselves and turn toward him. It's because they have said in their heart, I will not, I choose not, and I won't. Some people, you guys, get this. Some people are so in love with death and so in love with darkness that no matter what you do, they've made up their mind about which God they're gonna serve. And it's not the God of Jacob. It's not the God of Abraham. It's not the God of Elijah. It's not Jesus, Yeshua. It's, it's not the God we serve. And for some of us, we wrestle with that. And for those of you that have family members or neighbors or friends who have literally gone down that path, I would say continue to pray for them. Continue to lift them up before the throne of God. But don't be surprised if they don't want to participate and worship the God that you do. Jesus says oftentimes it's because their hearts and minds have been darkened by dark thoughts and dark feelings and dark desires so much that they love the darkness. They're in love with it. C.S. Lewis says it this way in the book, The Great Divorce. He says, ultimately it comes down to God, your will be done or God turning into you and saying, well, I guess your will be done. Right, because we choose which way we're gonna go, who we're going to serve. Once again, context is important here. Remember who's in the audience. Those who rejected Christ not just once, but twice. Those that rejected him the first time subjected him to crucifixion. They mocked him. They turned their back on him. And now they're doing it not for the first time. They're doing it yet again, which is why the writer says, listen, if you rejected Christ before the cross and you're rejecting Christ after the cross, there's no possible way that we can restore you back to a place of repentance. Because you've rejected the good news about Jesus and his kingdom all over again. It's like having him crucified all over again. It's like subjecting Christ to public disgrace all over again. Which is why he says it's impossible to bring someone back from that place. And then he issues some very huge warnings here. And he uses an agricultural Analogy, Hebrews chapter six, verses seven through eight. Let's put it up there. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives what? The blessing of God. How many are thankful for the blessing of God? How many are thankful that your land that receives the blessing of God? But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. The land that rejects the rain that God sends is cursed and it's eventually burned. Now, for many of us that want to refashion Jesus into a folk hero of our imagination that only goes around loving people and never judging them or challenging them or rebuking them or correcting them, we have a hard time with this passage. You mean, God, there's actually future judgment and fire awaiting those that reject you? Yes, if I were to stand here and say otherwise, y'all just leave, okay? <laughs> but that's what the word of God says. Jesus taught on it and all the prophets spoke of the judgment to come. If you read Ezekiel and Isaiah and Zechariah and Micah and Amos, like there is, there is severe judgment for those that hear the word that taste of heavenly bread, that experience the goodness and grace and mercy of God, that reject it. 
that deny it and that turn their back on it. Listen to what John the baptizer, one of the last prophets before Jesus, had to say. In Matthew 3, verse 12, speaking of Jesus, he said, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and then doing what? Burning up the shaft with unquenchable fire. A couple weeks ago, I burnt my hand. I was barbecuing and I turned on the grill and our igniter <laughs> broke. And so I have to manually light it with a lighter. And you get one of those like long neck ones that you can reach down in there. But I left the gas on and I ran inside to look for it and I couldn't find it and it took me a few minutes. And then I went out forgetting that I had left it running and the thing exploded. It went boom. <laughs> and I burned all of the hair off of my hand and, and my arm and I thought literally my eyebrows were gone. I was like, I ran inside. I was like, church is gonna love this on Sunday. It makes for a great story. My pain, your pleasure. But uh <laughs> I have to say, just that, that little bit of fire was intense. It was an unquenchable fire, though. The stark warning to us, and for those of you watching or listening to this, the stark warning is that those that reject what Jesus came to do and say have a judgment waiting for them in fire. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 27 echoes this sentiment. It says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of what? Judgment and what? Raging fire. Raging fire. That will consume the enemies of God. The truth is this. Those who reject God, who reject Jesus, are already judged and condemned. They're already judged. Jesus said it himself, and the Apostle John, writing about it in chapter 3, verse 18 of his gospel, says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, speaking of Jesus, but whoever does not believe in Jesus stands, what? Condemned already. Condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So what does all of this mean? It means that we've got to come to terms with what we actually believe. And for those of you listening to this or watching this, you got to come to terms with what you believe about Jesus because everything hinges on your answer. Everything hinges on your response to that. Who is Jesus? Who did Jesus say he was? And more importantly, who do you say that Jesus is? Standing at the gates of hell itself, at the mouth of the underworld, Jesus says to Peter, who do the people say that I am? And he says, well, some say prophet, some say man of God. And then he turns to Peter and says, yeah, but who do you say I am? Church, who do you say he is today? Those of you watching online or listening, who do you say Jesus is? Everything hinges on your answer to that question. Everything. And if you're still unsure about him, Today is the day to become sure about him. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Don't put off tomorrow what you can do today. Receive him. Hebrews chapter 11 verse one tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction or the evidence of things not seen. 
Can I say it again? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Without faith, you have no assurance. Without faith, you have no hope. Without faith, you have no conviction. And what a utterly horrible way to live your life without conviction, without hope, without faith. The Bible says that behold, he stands at the door and knocks. And I believe that he's knocking on the doors of some of your hearts this morning. One of the dangers of rejecting faith and rejecting your assurance of the things that you hope for and rejecting Christ himself and clinging to unbelief is that you have no hope and that you have no conviction and that your life is tossed about by the wind and waves of the world. Friends, that's not what God wants for us. The writer goes on to make sure that we, those who believe and are saved, Know this, that we grab a hold of our hope, that we grab a hold of our great assurance in Christ Jesus. If you hear nothing else from me today, hear this, Hebrews 6, 9. Even though we speak this way, dear friends, beloved saints, people of God, we are convinced of better things in your case. The things that have to do with what? Salvation. Did you notice the switch in tone? Did you notice the switch in direction? But in your case, we want to tell you about the better things that have to do with salvation, the things that belong to you as those who belong to him. And the writer's speaking here, and he's switching gears on purpose here because he wants them and us as believers to rest confidently in the final and the finished work of Jesus on that cross. The things that actually have to do with our salvation. Amen. You guys, this is the blessed assurance that he wants every one of us to have and to know. If you belong to him, then his life belongs to you. If you are in Christ, Christ is in you. By one offering, he perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, the word of God says. That by the power of God himself and the blood of his eternal covenant, he is now working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Christ Jesus, to whom be the glory forever and ever and ever, amen. I love the words of this old hymn, Fanny Crosby. Some of you know it. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir to salvation, purchased by God, born of his spirit and washed in his blood. Am I talking to anybody today for whom that is your reality? Which means you don't have to come down to the altar and get saved every week, praise God. Now, you might need to come down to the altar and confess some things so that you can be healed, your salvation is secure in Christ. Once and for all, he accomplished his work and sat down at the right hand of the Father. He is our high priest, not offering up continual sacrifices. No, he's already done it. And this is why we're going through Hebrews, because I want you guys to have this anchored in your hearts. I want this to be a settled thing, because here's what's going to happen. As the days become more evil, and they are, as the temptations continue to increase, as the birth pains and the earthquakes and the volcanoes and the wars and the rumors of wars and all the things that we see in Matthew 24 and 25 begin to take place, some people are going to go, oh, I don't know what to do. What am I going to do? You're going to stand secure in Christ Jesus. You're going to hope for your salvation, which is here and to come. And you're going to know that you belong to him and that there's nothing that can happen, no pestilence, no sword, no danger, no angel, no demon that could separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Come on, somebody. I preach myself today. We've got to have this. We've got to know this because the world needs believers right now that have conviction, that have an assurance 
of the things that are unseen. Some of us, we live our lives so frantically from moment to moment, from altar to altar, from sin to sin, and we need to understand we've been washed, we've been cleansed, we've been purchased, we've been redeemed, we've been renewed, we've been reconciled. These are already things that Jesus has done. Praise you, God. Thank you, Jesus. And that should give us assurance. That should give us hope. That should allow our hearts to be encouraged when we're discouraged. I'll tell you what, some of us spend way too much time on Twitter worrying about the world. And we need to get in the word of God. We need to get in the book of Hebrews and realize that we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. Come on, regardless of, of what happens next year with the election, all that, our citizenship is in heaven. We're seated with him. That, that word seated, as I taught about just a few works, just a few weeks ago, means established. You're immovable and established in him. Do you believe that today? Yeah. Amen. Now we get to the fun part. Hebrews 6, verses 10 through 12. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love that you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. I love this scripture because some of you, can I just be honest? Some of you get discouraged in helping other people and you get discouraged in praying for your friends that don't know Jesus and you get discouraged in asking your neighbors to come to church and they don't. I've got one. I just keep asking them. They look at me and smile. I'm like, one of these days you guys are coming. Maybe not tomorrow, but one of these days. But I can tell you what, after a few years of asking, you get discouraged. After a few years of trying, you get discouraged. Some of you, and you're helping of people, and you're serving of people, you get worn out because you lose sight of, of what it is that God's actually doing and what he's doing in you. And that's why the writer says, he's not unjust, you guys. Precisely because God is just, he is a God of justice. Because of this reason, verse 11 goes on to say, we want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. And then he says, we don't want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. People of God, God has not forgotten you. He's not forgotten us, Courageous Church. He remembers our deeds and the way that we love one another and the way that we love others. He knows how hard you work to help and serve others and he doesn't want you to give up on doing so. He wants us to remain diligent to the very end. To the very end. The way scripture tells us to in verse 10. You guys, this is our calling card as a church. It's part of our mission statement. A Courageous Church, it's precisely this. To do what? It's to help people. To help people become courageous followers of Jesus. Helping people is what we're all about. It's the center of why we exist. It's what we do because we love God. And even more importantly, because God first loved us. Because he first loved you. And because while we were yet sinners, he died for us. Beloved, that's why we're here today. To be reminded of this truth. So in closing, let me ask you and all those watching or listening online, this very important question, do you know Jesus? And as I already said, the better question is, does Jesus know you? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, everyone, everyone, everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. So let me ask you, has Jesus acknowledged you before his Father? Have you acknowledged him here on earth? If yes, you can boldly say, as the hymn proclaims, blessed assurance, 
Jesus is mine. And if the answer is no, then why wait? Perhaps today is your moment. For those of you watching, perhaps today is your moment. I'd love to pray with you. Can we do that together, church? Father, I thank you that in these moments, Lord, you come to us with the free gift of eternal life, with salvation itself. Even now and throughout this message, your Holy Spirit has been working, working to awaken hearts, to remove blunders off of eyes, to stir in us, Lord, discontentment for status quo and for earthly things because we wanna participate and partake of the heavenly things, things that are unseen but that come to us because of hope, because of faith, because of the assurance that we have when we put our trust in you, Jesus. Without you, we have nothing, we can do nothing, and we are nothing. But with you, we have life eternal, life forevermore, life abundantly, life that goes on and on and on and on. And so today, for that person watching or listening or even here today, God has brought before you a choice. He says, choose life or choose death. It's your choice. No one's going to make it for you. Maybe you answered an altar call or you checked a box or you said a prayer, but it's not enough if in your heart you didn't surrender your soul to Christ. And that comes when you recognize that you can't do life without him, that there's nothing the world can offer you, that all of your works are dead, all of your righteousness filthy before him. But friend, in Christ Jesus, he offers you a new life a life born of the heavens, a life born of the spirit, a life not of striving, but of peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, a life where your salvation is secure in him, where your eternal destiny is secure in him. Would you welcome him in today? Would you receive this perfect, wondrous gift today? I believe that the way that we do that is the way that the scriptures tell us to. Romans 10, 9. You believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that God raised him from the dead. Can I lead you in a prayer to do that today? God, I thank you that you sent Jesus to die for our sins, to make a way for us to experience salvation, eternal salvation. Church, can we just pray this together? Jesus, save me. Save me from myself. Save me from the mess I've made of things. We believe right now and we confess publicly here on earth that you are God. We repent of our sins, we turn our back on that life and we turn towards you. Holy Spirit, come fill us, regenerate us, give us a new life of freedom, of hope in you forevermore. Fill us with your spirit all the days of our life that we might follow you. And we pray all those things in the mighty, matchless name of Jesus and all God's people said amen. Amen Amen and amen. Hey, if you made that decision and you're listening or watching this, please let us know. You can DM us in the comments. You can send us an email. You can go online to courageouschurch.com slash connect, fill out a digital card. Let us know about your decision. You can do that with the blue connect card here today as well. Can I leave you with one encouraging scripture? John chapter 10, verses 28 through 30. 
Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one, 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 no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one, no one, no one, no one, no one, no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand either. Amen. Thank you for listening today. If you were blessed and you want to be a part of what God is doing through Courageous Church, including ways that you can give, visit us online at CourageousChurch.com.